Good morning. Uh, the Lord be with you. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this conference, for your reaching across and through different communication avenues to give to us the greatest story ever told and to invite us into it. And we ask that you might use this time in your word this morning in our lives and in our ministries. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to do <clears throat> to read through this, and uh, and uh, at times I think I'm gonna get off of the, the manuscript and and talk, which would be my desire. But I want to see how quickly and how well I can get through <clears throat> these thoughts. I want to introduce my talk by setting forth two quotations. It's actually three from Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. The points that I am looking for us to see in these quotations have to do with children's access to truth on the one hand and how fairy stories or in my reading here this morning children's stories necessarily set us within a vortex pulling us toward truth. You know those coin funnels? This is what I mean by the vortex. Those coin funnels that gather donations of loose change while you were waiting endlessly for a table at a restaurant with your grandmother. I waited in, in restaurant lobbies for half of my childhood life, starving, waiting for our table to be called and to get the three crayons and the white placemat to write on. But that vortex, the coin will, must make it into the trap. And these stories pull us into the truth. They have to end. Uh, Tolkien seems to be saying that fairy stories will or must have an inevitable connection with truth. Now here's the first quotation. Children are capable, of course, of literary belief when the story maker's art is good enough to produce it. The state of mind has been called willing suspension of disbelief, but that, this does not seem to me to be a good cre uh, description of what happens. What really happens is that the story maker proves a successful sub-creator. He makes a secondary world in which your, which your mind can enter. Inside, what he relates is true. It accords with the laws of that world. You therefore believe it while you, were, you are, as it were, inside. Yes, on the one hand, but I think he also wants us to see that that world, that secondary world's laws and truths, must also correspond with transcendent laws or truths. Because he also writes that the peculiar quality of the joy in successful fantasy can thus be explained as a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. It is not only a consolation for the sorrow of this world, but a satisfaction and an answer to that question, is it true? And it seems for Tolkien, the trueness of the transcendence inevitably connects with the biblical story. And I'm going to skip this lengthy quotation that talks about how the biblical story is the you catastrophe. We talked about that a lot this weekend. The biblical story is that highest uh, story. <clears throat> <clears throat> I 
He says, art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. I just ended that longer quotation. In today's case study, I want to show how children's vision, transcendent truth, and the biblical story all come together in Psalm 45. Now, I've titled this uh, an intentional foreshadowing interlude, giving you a chance to take a deep breath. Um, And I want to look at the once upon a time world. I'm going to do a quiz. I thought about handing it out, but we're not going to hand it out. So we'll just do it from here. You can all take out a piece of paper and a pencil. Not really, I guess, unless you want to. And we're going to do a little quiz. Okay? Now the purpose of this quiz, this this quiz is called Once Upon a Time World versus Your World. The purpose of the quiz is to show that there is a world people accept that has a value system different than their otherwise values. Okay? And it also is to prime the pump for thinking about Psalm 45's tale. So this is a quiz on Psalm 45, a foreshadowing quiz, but it's also a revealing quiz. Okay? So all of the statements or questions can be answered with a yes or a no. In Once Upon a Time World, and I use that instead of fairy stories because I just can't limit it to fairy stories. I forgot my prop. We'll talk about that in a moment, and then you'll understand. I was supposed to get it at your house, mother, on the way here. In Once Upon a Time World, are maidens expected to get married and live happily ever after? Yes, they must. In your world, could a maiden live happily ever after if she doesn't get married? Yes. <laughs> they, that must, in today's world, to say that a maiden has to get married, right, is to do violence to the maiden, right? So you see this huge disconnect. In Once Upon a Time world, would the maiden do anything more than kiss her parents goodbye for the rest of her life to go off to marry the prince, right? No, she'd go. In your world, would the maiden do anything more than kiss her parents goodbye? I even had a student write this week. um, She would get to decide whether she wanted to live that far from her parents, right? In Once Upon a Time world, does the maiden need to think about if the prince is a good enough husband? No. In your world, would the, um, the ma- uh, would the maiden need to think about whether the prince is a good enough husband? Yes, right? <clears throat> How about leaving your family and villagers without a second thought? In the maiden's world, no big deal. In your world? <clears throat> How about a calling? Maybe, maybe the maiden studied veterinary science. <laughs> And she liked milking her father's herd. And she was working on perfecting it. Maybe she didn't want to leave that behind to go off and marry the prince. Right? See the, te- the tension here? In, in, in Once Upon a Time world, she goes, leaves the veterinary degree behind without a second thought. Right? How about the enemies of the prince? Do we ever think about the enemies killed and the families and the suffering? In, in Once Upon a Time world? No. In our world, yes. How about the king? Does the king always rule benevolently? And would the king and queen always make good in-laws? In once upon a time world, it's yes. And in our world, not so much. Does the maiden worry about moving in with the in-laws? 
Is the king always right when he rules? In Once Upon a Time World, does the maiden always live happily ever after by bearing sons? <laughs> sons and bearing children? And in your world, do sons always bring happily ever after? The answer is no. Okay, so here's the, the simultaneous interlude number two, which is the Fisher-Price Castle that I forgot to bring this morning. Do you know what the Fisher-Price Castle is? My students don't. I show them a picture of it on the Google image. I want to just say a couple things about this Fisher-Price Castle. First of all, I could actually get inside that castle when I was a child. I could get inside the castle. I, physically, it's impossible, right? But I knew that castle like I knew my own home in that sense. Um, <clears throat> the purpose of this is to, to, say, to show one more way to take you far away with me, to engage in this truth discussion. Let's imagine for a moment, if any of us would play with this toy or world, if there were, let's just think about this. Remember the king, that purple wooden guy with the plastic head and the crown? Imagine if the castle came with two purple wooden guys with a plastic head and a crown. The kids wouldn't play with it. Or two queens. Purple queen with the, the plastic. The, the kids would not play with that, right? Imagine, let's take this. This is, this is dangerous here, but it, it's okay. I have to, we have to put truth all on the table. Imagine if there was one king and two queens. Now, none of us would ever play with that, but in Africa they might. Okay? And that's the honesty that we have to be about this stuff. Okay? And that, so that brings in the question of what can be destructed. And so I'm looking forward here to the next interlude on Hans Christian Andersen about can a new story world be created. Okay? Anyways, back to this interlude. I suggest that even in the case of Psalm 45, there will be pieces that can be reevaluated or reimagined profitably, but that there are elements such as heterosexuality and binaries that are fixed in this castle story world and its connection with children, etc. I don't think there's, even though there might be a culture in Africa where one king and two queens would work for children to play with, I don't think there's any place where two kings would work for children to play with. I may be wrong about that, but I don't think there's a culture in that sense. Or where the king becomes queen, or something like that, the binaries. Okay, so now our intentional interlude number three. Probably my favorite fairy tale author, Hans Christian Andersen. And as a child, my least favorite Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes. And why as a child is that your least favorite story? Because it's stupid. Right? It's the dumbest story I've ever heard. Right? But it's so true. The purpose of this interlude is to recall that children's uncovered or recovered truth, once upon a time truth, might be truer than the constructs of adult truths. Okay? And I just want to make four statements about the emperor's new clothes here. The weavers identified as elite fashion designers and craftsmen. The emperor identified as being clothed. The adults accepted 
both the weavers and the emperor's identities. But the child empirically rejected the identities and spoke the truth. Okay? We're going to get back to thinking about this in the takeaway at the end. And I should have this with me. But now the interludes are over. Let's look at Psalm 45. And I, uh, I think I'll read my purpose for looking at Psalm 45, and then I'll read Psalm 45, and then we will discuss some things. My first purpose is to follow Tolkien. A, not in the creation of a new fairy tale to express truth, and B, not only in reading the gospel story as the true or truest fairy tale, but C, so this is where I'm following Tolkien, in an existing biblical once upon a time story, to explore the presence of indelible traces of trans-temporal slash trans-cultural truths such as also exist in fairy tales. That's my first purpose. My second purpose is to follow our hearts and then our minds into what Psalm 45 might be calling us to do or to be. And here I've quoted um, Psalm 45, verse 10. <clears throat> Listen, daughter, and see, and turn your ears, and forget your people and the house of your father. Okay? And I might make an aside here, an exegetical aside, or a, I'm not sure if we want to call it an exegetical aside, but I mentioned to uh, Pastor Garrison yesterday that long after I started working with this psalm, I, I discovered that this psalm is, um, what would you say, hallowed by Roman, a Roman Catholic reading as a being about Mary. So this is a, this is a psalm for the lectionary on uh, one of the Mary feast days. Okay, so, and I, and I intend to do, I've begun some investigating to see about where that might be. There's some, might, maybe some exegetical connections there. I am not treating that in my discussion of Psalm 45 this morning. Just, that's just a, an aside for any of you that might be wondering about that. And I think it may be worth treating, but I am not doing it this morning. Okay, let us look at Psalm 45. And when I read this, remember those pieces of the puzzle from the quiz. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. That's what we all want in a ruler. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Incidentally, I suggest that's something we also all want, although we'll get back to that question in, in a moment. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We'll get back to that Trinitarian question in a moment. Back to the description. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And here, um, Reverend Kennedy would be proud and happy. Right? You can smell the king coming. In a good way. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Is anybody in here reading this in the New International Version? Yes, Kelly, what does it say? Uh, and uh, Reverend Garrison? The end of the verse about the queen in the gold of Ophir. Okay, so the royal bride, you see how it's queen? Remember, <clears throat> I think it's, I think it's uh, Belshazzar's mother came to him at the banquet. So, so it says queen, but see, that makes us sometimes think, is there polygamy here? Because this is describing a marriage, right? And if the queen is already at the king's hand, why does he need another one? But the... the um, Royal bride might be a translation that's helping us to see that this might be the queen mother at the right hand of the unmarried prince. Okay? I've never presented it this way in the past before, but um, it's always kind of a sticking point. Is this psalm presenting polygamy? And, of course, the Israelite kings were polygamists, right? But is, it's, it's worth considering that question. Okay. <clears throat> So it's possible, from an exegetical perspective, that this is not a polygamous description here. Okay, Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. This is what I have located as the sort of core of the application of this. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Evan? What beauty? <laughs> There's no beauty in this, in this queen. Evan was on Niggle yesterday. They, they did find Niggle in, in, in Evan's reading of Niggle's, or they did find beauty in Evan's reading of Niggle. Um, <clears throat> and he's probably right. Um, the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Is that how a wife treats a husband in today's thinking. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king in joy and gladness. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is God's word. So, Psalm 45. 
It's a story of a wedding, but there is all kinds of other attendant details in there describing what it is to be royal. And I would suggest that this connects in our heart's level in once upon a time world. Okay, so the items that I have set forth to think about, as I've already mentioned in part, maidens and marriage, maidens and romantic versus arranged marriage, maidens and parents, hometowns, maidens and independent vocations. And let me just say, as I go through this list of items, the way that Once Upon a Time World handles these items would be immediately subject for cancel culture, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? And yet, our society has not been able to get that out of who we are. This is my point. This is where it comes to natural law or natural theology. And it's revealed in our story interests. War and enemies. And I'm saying this intentionally, this sort of pun intentionally. Do enemy lives matter? Do their families matter? Psalm 137. Blessed is the one who takes your little child and dashes him on the rocks. Right? In Once Upon a Time world, we don't ask about the child or his mother or anything like that. They're the king's enemies. His sharp arrows are meant for their hearts. Do their lands matter? Oh, scorched earth. Politics. Kings can be trusted always to rule justly and benevolently. Benevolently. But what about Lord Acton's statement on absolute power, right? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we have democracy. Vote the bums out. But is there ever a king, or don't we ever want a king, that you would not want to have even an election for, right? Maidens and in-laws moving in with them? Could the husband be spoiled? Could the maids really be fulfilled in childbearing? And for that matter, sons? Only sons? So as adults, we have been able to deconstruct all of these items. And that's how most of the West has also done away with hereditary monarchical dynasties. We talked about uh, history, right? The French got rid of theirs. The English didn't manage to. They, what did they do? Circumscribed it to some degree. Kept it. It it sort of operates in a fairy tale, right? It's not real still. But all of these deconstructed elements still connect in childhood fantasy. I suggest that the connection, despite the deconstruction, is because there is some kind of transcendent truth reflected in our once-upon-a-time world. Okay, so now I want to apply these transcendent truths that come out of once-upon-a-time world. And I want to say that perhaps the transcendent truth 
is that we uniformly, natural law, want life to look this way. We uniformly want life to look like once upon a time and end like happily ever after and have all the other things in between. Okay? So we want a calling to maidens that is compelling enough to forsake all. And I have cited here Matthew 19, verses 20 to 30. That's the rich young ruler. Jesus says one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor and follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. What do we have? Right? And then in in Luke 14, Jesus says, unless you hate father, mother, etc. Just... These, both of these discipleship pattern, passages really show us what this maiden did, right? In Once Upon a Time world. She left the veterinary degree and the refining herd of her father. She left her parents. She didn't care about any of that for the glory and the perfection of royalty. And we want that. I, I think, I'm thinking of myself in a sense here as perhaps one of the most homesick type children you'll ever meet. And yet that thought never crossed my mind while I was crawling around in the Fisher-Price castle or reading those stories because we understand that higher calling, the glory, everything else pales in comparison for it. We want a calling, or as Dr. Sunshine explained, an enchanted purpose in which all is black and white. War is good versus evil. Enemies, all of them, are evil and must be destroyed. And I promised here I'm going to get back to something from Evans Niggle thing. Simultaneously, however, and this is an interesting part about, about what I think is natural theology, natural truth. Not only do we want the enemies to be trodden, completely done away with underfoot. Simultaneously, we want redeeming mercy. So this notion of uh, justice and mercy kissing, we don't understand it, we can't conceive of it, but we love it, right? And that's that thing in Niggle with the two voices, right? I think this might be the tension that Evan brought out yesterday in the dialogue between justice and mercy at the judgment in Niggle. We all want to be part of the dynastic building toward happily ever after. We all want, so, so by just being put into this thing about bearing sons who will be kings to take the place, we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Bigger than ourselves means we lose ourselves in it, even if we lose ourselves to a son if we're a woman in, in that case. <clears throat> And we all want to be, or we all want the end of elections and coups because the king, the true king reigns forever. And this is where the theology of the psalm hits Hebrews 1.8 with full Trinitarian force. In Hebrews 8, or sorry, 1, it says, in contrast to angels, God says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of of uprightness, by the way, he's quoting Psalm 45. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your contemporaries. And I don't know if you see it that quickly, but there is a Trinitarian puzzle here. The king is called God and has been placed by God. So there is plurality in Godness. In Psalm 45, which is obviously centuries before Christianity. Okay, So that's why Hebrews 1 the author of Hebrews can pick that up. So in Christianity, the ancient Near Eastern fairy tale of lifting the king up to deity is retold, or I'd like to even better say uptold, as the divine king coming down and appropriately raising the kingdom heavenward, eternity word. So once we daughters catch this vision... And I love to say here that if you are so masculine that you're, that you're reading the Bible in all binary male and female stuff, you've got to get over being called the bride of Christ first, right? And secondly, being addressed as a daughter here, not directly, but inferentially speaking, right? So once we daughters catch this vision, when Zion comes to us, and makes us a nuptial offer, we'll gladly go. And we'll count the cost by not counting the cost. So the story message of Psalm 45 boils down to the imperatives. Listen, daughter, and see, and turn your ears, and forget your people and the house of your father. We all understand and uniformly agree to the truth of this message. Since we have known its truths, since we first heard them in once upon a time world as children. And this reminds me of C.S. Lewis and ethics. He says we don't need to go find ethics somewhere else. The ethics that the world is built on come from our nurses. We've known them since we were babies. They're already there, and same with Once Upon a Time. In fact, when we first heard Once Upon a Time stories, arguably, we liked them because they resonated with something already structurally inside of us. That's just, that probably shouldn't be taken too far, but it's a, certainly a, a hypothesis, a possible hypothesis. Okay, so let's go to takeaways. I have four takeaways and we've probably already covered them in one way or another, eh, in some ways. And then we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have time to open it up for some discussion about this. Number one, using our observations about the knowledge, I'm sorry, using our observations about the knowable gap between once upon a time world and our world, let us recognize that there still remains a vestige of countercultural truth within the culture and in spite of the culture. And as um, Reverend Kennedy said yesterday about when people are, when you're doing an evangelistic setting and you're at opposite places to go with what you agree on, this helps us to understand that there is a fundamental agreement in that Fisher-Price castle, in a sense, okay? I think, now here's the other side of this, and this is, this is where I'm going to open this up and, 
and let something out of Pandora's box, but that's okay, I think. I think that the operatives of the culture recognize this fact. I think they recognize that, that, that the Fisher-Price Castle and the Bible go together well. And I think there will be two worrisome developments. I should have also said the operatives of the culture recognize that once upon a time world and revealed truth in the Bible go together. And so I think there will be two worrisome developments. The first development would be that cultural operatives will try to write new false tales. And we've already seen this. I think last winter was the first time that that Christmas, that, that, that TV uh, station that shows all those Christmas stories all the time. I think they had a, a gay, uh, I think a gay uh, center was the first time, I think, last year. And we've seen some of the other stuff like that. I think even there's like a transgender character or more in Disney now, right? I think I've seen these things. I don't get deeply into them, but I think they are trying to write new false tales. And this gets us back to the whole question about the two kings and uh, the, the one king and the two queens in Africa and so forth. Uh, the question that remains, and I think we know the answer, is whether the new tales will be in any way compelling. And I think, that, I think they won't be. Okay? And I think that that connects with what was said yesterday by, I think it was Reverend Kennedy, that once you take away goodness, you also take away beauty. Right? So the art will disappear. So the stories will not be compelling. Number two possibility is that the cultural operatives will try to eliminate the old true tales. And with all that has happened culturally, in general, and digitally in specific in the last two years, it is easy to see how retaining our personal hard copy libraries will be important. I actually believe this. I don't know about my generation and my unwieldy library, but I do believe that maybe in my children's generation or following, I think the direction is headed that way. I think we could read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle to see a picture of that stuff happening. We could also read Deuteronomy's song. You're to be singing this song so that you learn your history by singing it. Okay, number two. Takeaway, for engaging with the culture or even just for strengthening your own mind and family against the onslaught, consider creating once upon a time tales that confront the tenets of the in this house we believe signs on the one hand or the five tenets of moral therapeutic deism on the other. So I'd love to, I didn't, I didn't take the time for this lesson, but I thought about sitting down and writing a fairy tale, or not, once upon the time tale, that was bringing into question science is science, or science is real, or love is love, or water is life, etc. You could do this in a fair, or women's rights or human's rights, or uh, Black Lives Matter, or whatever, the things that are on that we believe sign. You could probably write a tale or two for each one of those that would reveal the logical inconsistencies of those. For example, is there a door 
or a, is there a drawbridge on the castle? Yes. Then some lives are illegal. Right? It says it, on the, it says it on the sign. No human is illegal. Well, a human being is illegal in my safe, in my house, across my Canadian border, as we found out when we were threatened to be put in jail for house sitting in Canada. These things are logically inconsistent, right? So maybe we should tell the tales against them. Third takeaway. Use the gap between once upon a time world and our world to open the door to looking across time and space to the message of the Bible revealed in its culture. In other words, what I do with this, I show this quiz to my students, and then they know that their knowledge is not the only knowledge. And that opens up for them a receptivity to hear a different version of knowledge in the, care, in the case of love and romance. <clears throat> and I, I want to go backwards a second, this creating a tale. I did the we believe sign, but what about moral the therapeutic deism? That God loves everyone and everybody's going to be all right in the end, right? That doesn't work with any fairy tale, right? So tell that fairy tale in the face of moral therapeutic deism. Okay, the fourth takeaway. Finally, let us follow Psalm 45. Up Zion's hill, out of our faulty temporal truth, admittedly looking for satisfaction in Zion's king eternal. I'm sorry, both in, his, both in Zion's king eternal and in that king's eternal unchanging truth. Of course we take steps to doing so by the ongoing renewing of our minds through not only pondering true stories, but much more so by engaging with his truth, revealed by his Holy Spirit in Scripture. So let me close in prayer, and then we have time for questions and comments. Our Heavenly Father, this is a powerful image. To listen to the call of the groom, the best groom we could ever want. And we ask, Heavenly Father, we know that this resonates deep in our hearts. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that by your grace we might rise up and follow thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we wanting to talk or are we wanting to go to uh, have some Krispy Kreme? What's deep within us, as the as the enchanted or the the, um, the way God programmed us, you know. That's going to be a little bit in the sermon. Romans one says we suppress the truth. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit in the. It's going to be a little bit in the sermon. They don't like the truth. They don't like that king's righteousness. We don't like them either. Even though we have a drawing toward it, we're in sin. You know, even we're rebellious. Like, like, you know, you mentioned like gay and stuff like that. And all. And gay, 
you know, even in spite of the best case scenario that you hear about oh, all these people being happy and now living out there what they really think they want to be, deep down under, you can tell there's a, there's a longing for something else. Evan talked about that in the last two weeks in Sunday school with not homosexuals, but with, what is it, the career woman, the endless career woman? And what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in Sunday school is that it's partly parents' fault. Because parents create, our parents discipling people, children into a world that is sociologically contra God's design. And the lights don't come on until you're in your, I, Evan was talking about that last week. Again, the 40s or 50s. And then it's late or too late. Somebody else have anything to say to this? Yeah, Evan.
So I have two responses. One is, to go along with what you're saying, the gospel story is appetizing. <laughs> so when, when, you, when you say is it, it's wrong to appeal to people's appetites, the gospel story is appetizing. You, but you have to confess that you need that appetizing material, right? It's the, the one who is, what does he say? The one who is forgiven much loves much, right? The one who's forgiven little loves little. And so it's the sick that need a doctor and not the healthy. It's appetizing to the sick. It's appetizing to the poor. It's appetizing to the wicked, right? So that's on the one hand. So I agree with you on that. There, there is the notion that you've said about creating stories, but I'm suggesting in this talk that we can see the stories as already created and use them. So Psalm 45, well, that's what this is the case study in. Psalm 45 already is that story that already does that for us in that sense. There, there's room for more creation, right? But I'm saying that there, there is this here along with others as well in the Bible. This is just the one case study I've chosen. So thank you for the comment. Yes? I would just say that something has more life behind me than from me. Um, when I was growing up, my parents and my grandparents read us Aesop's fables, um, fairy tales, old, uh, we had two books, a big, a big white one that was a book of stories and fairy tales and rhymes. The other was a big blue book that had all the Aesop's fables. Um, I don't necessarily think that we have to recreate them. I think, I think what we've done over the past 40 or 50 years is allow Disney <laughs> to, uh, to teach our children and our grandchildren uh, fairy tales. And you'll notice that the fairy tales change. And the, the one example is the recent uh, release of, of, the, of the cartoon of the Beauty of the Beast. Beauty and the Beast is not about the class, it's not about the classic fairy tale of, of the, the, the man, the prince who's, who's, who's uh, worrying within himself about the beast and, and is he going to be a prince, is he going to be a king, is he going to be a beast? But, hmm. I'm thinking of Grimm's, right? And those were not written by the Brothers Grimm. They were collated by the Brothers Grimm. And so these are, it's almost like there's a timelessness to them already in how they come to us from the Grimm's. I see, that's a good point because today in our culture, 
shoving the witch into the, into, into the, into the oven. Dashing the sun against the stone. Yeah, it's, I But yet, you're, as children, we, we, don't, we don't argue with that. You never argue with throwing the witch into the kettle as children. Well, because when I was little, witches were bad. Yes, that's the and black and white. Today, witches have, you know, you, know, you have a right to... to yeah. And that's the world we live in, so we have to figure out how we're going to deal with it. What I'm suggesting is that the children already know the children already know good and evil in that sense. The children don't have... It's the adults that need to be helped out a little bit with that. And I'm saying by using these alternative paths, like inviting the adults into the castle, then we could take them back to a place that they already know but have obscured in their constructs. That's, I, I, that's the only solution that I can come up with. Your comments are fantastic. Thank you. So something that he said, that you said, that he said, that you said. <laughs> yeah. Right in front of 
front of us every day is that petty evil that gets into everything. And that needs to be in the story as well, which is why we've, <laughs> we've got people telling us, oh, well, you don't really have to worry about evil until it's trying to rule the world. Where it's like, no, we yeah. need to defeat evil when it's peeling the skin off animals. And that's where it goes with Aesop's fables, right? It's the smallest virtue that we're talking about there, right? And I think that that's, that, that's a great... Yeah, I would say that, that from, from, a, from a Christian perspective, that the only thing I can really be concerned with, really control as much as I can control anything, is what my children listen to here when they're within the home. Once they get out of the home, I can't control that. So I have, so I have to try to build those things within that, in that structure of the home. After that, you know, you just, you know, frankly, you just pray for your kids. Mm. You want to close us? So I would end just by returning us to Psalm 45. Listen, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. That charge goes to us whether or not at the Billy Graham crusade decades ago we did that. That charge goes to us now. The charge of rising up and following me comes to us now. Taking up your cross and following me. Uh, so these stories, we're not done yet. We're still living in that. 
in that story progression in our own lives. And so uh, I, would, I would challenge us with that and uh, commit ourselves to the Lord's grace and mercy. And of course, that's where all of these things are going to end and we're going to get there in the, in the sermon. But uh, this is where we're headed this morning. And it's for a reason. When we come to the bread and we come to the wine, we come with our hands open and ourselves needing fed. Not somebody else's hands. Right? And so that's our challenge uh, this morning. Let's get out there, get your donuts and stuff, and then come back in. The Lord bless you.